Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Joe Borstein. I've known Joe for a long time because he's been on the leading edge of change in the industry for many years. Today, he's the founder of LexFusion, a new collaborative venture that handpicks truly excellent legal innovation companies. LexFusion is born of Joe's experience as both lawyer and entrepreneur, with the goal of accelerating the adoption of technology within corporate legal departments and law firms. Their goal is to accomplish this by transforming a lengthy and sometimes brutal sales cycle into one that's simpler and easier. Joe calls it a one-stop shop for high-end legal innovation. Now, Joe's had a fascinating career path. The son of lawyers, Joe never doubted that he would follow the same path of his parents. He practiced law for six years before making the leap to Pangea 3, which was one of the first models for legal service delivery, at the time outside the norm for law firms. From the beginning, Joe has been consistent. He believes that the growth of LPOs and ALSPs would not shrink the market, but grow it. Ten years later, we can't say he's wrong. In fact, it looks like he's right. In today's conversation, we talk about what it was like to put together and launch a business during the pandemic, building trust in a virtual environment, the changing mindset of the purchases of legal services, and how LexFusion chooses its member companies. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Joe, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Really well, thanks for the time. Thanks, thanks for joining. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. You've been a busy guy. You're always the busy guy. <laughs> yeah, the last, now it's almost nine months. I've been really crazy and really exciting putting, putting together LexFusion. I, I want to talk more about LexFusion and some of your prior ventures and your path. I got a whole host of things to talk to you about. But what was it like putting together this business in the middle of a pandemic? <laughs> so, it, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? So uh, this was an idea I had at least six months before the pandemic. And I'm you know, going to give credit to a handful of people. I worked on it very closely with Paul Stroka, my first partner who joined. Casey Flaherty, who, who, who just joined us as a partner, um, was involved from the beginning in, in iterating on the idea. And Ed Sohn, who's now at Factor but was with me at Ernst & Young, also weighed in pretty heavily on, on, on what this could look like. But I'll be honest, without the pandemic and the absolute dead stop of work that we had for a few months in the very beginning until things picked up again, I don't think I would have ever gotten this thing off the ground. So uh, I, 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 in some way, I'm grateful for the pandemic for uh, giving me the time and mind space to think through uh, what a collective like LexFusion could look like. Oh, isn't that interesting? I wondered whether, obviously, uh, you know, the business model involves dealing with a variety of providers and vendors and suppliers. Again, we'll talk more about that later. Were these folks you knew before or were you making new connections virtually in the pandemic to get this off the ground? Uh, the answer is both. So there were some areas where we had deep, deep connections, for example, in the world of e-discovery and litigation services in the world of contract review and contract technology. We have, you know, one of the biggest teams in the world with NGA3 and Ernst & Young. So some of the categories, we thought less in terms of vendors and more in terms of categories. We wanted to be an organization that could walk into any general counsel's office or law firm and be able to solve virtually any of their quasi-legal problems, basically meaning 
any problem other than we need Scadden for the practice of law, for example, or we need Stephen Poor for the practice of law very specifically, right? right. Um, that's right. a problem that, that we can't solve in the C corporation in this day and age unless regulations change. But we were like, why silo ourselves to the handful of problems that legal services can handle through ALSPs or legal technology can handle? So for a lot of them, we knew the marketplace extremely well. We vetted a handful of providers because we already had strong opinions. For other categories, um, we were meeting absolutely net new people. And for some categories, we have still not made a choice of who our provider will be to fill it or whether we've determined that it is a mature enough technology and service that it unequivocally provides value now. That was one of our standards. We wanted to have shovel-ready services and technologies that we could look our clients in the eye and say, you know, bring this on and you will see value quickly. So I presume that you had a couple of variables. One, the nature of the technology itself, what it did, whether it's robust enough, et cetera, et cetera. But I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that another component was the team behind the technology. A hundred percent. Could you trust them? Did you have confidence in them? And so you're you're building those kinds of relationships for some of these companies virtually. I've read articles about how going back and forth as to whether the virtual connectivity inhibits the trust building, whether it allows for more trust building. How did you find the personal relationship side of it that you were trying to build work in a virtual environment? Well, I certainly in the beginning wished that we could be in person. I was a bit devastated when the pandemic went on and on and on. <laughs> you know, we, we started- Yes, where were we all? Right, rather early in the pandemic. And like I said, we, we owed a lot to the pandemic. It gave us the, the mind space and the time to think through it. We all thought it would end in October, November, December, January. So now we're, you know, three, four months into the business. And for some of the companies, I've never met anyone. For others, I've met only the C-suite. But I'm, you know, I'm working with the VP of sales, the VP of marketing, subject matter experts like, like Ed Sohn at Factor. And I was upset that, that, that we weren't getting to meet in person. I will say, though, you know, recently I've gotten the chance to meet a, a lot of my teammates in person, and they're exactly as they show up on video chat. Like, I, I, it did feel like a revelatory experience. I was like, oh, there's my friend so-and-so. Um, we've been working together for seven months. It actually felt very natural. And, and I guess I, as somebody who really believes in in-person meetings, I, I was surprised by how effective the relationship building was through virtual connections. This may be a weird question, but one of the components I've noticed about the virtual communication, and there's lots of things bad to say about it, but one of the good things about it is when you're talking to people, like we're we're talking, you see the background of my office, I see the background of your folks. Of my parents' house. <laughs> but there's a individual nature to that communication that you're not going to see when you're sitting around a conference room table. Absolutely. This dynamic you're talking about where you, when you met them, they were exactly as they seemed on Zoom. Was there a little bit of you felt a little more connected to them through the Zoom or through the yeah. webinar because you're talking to them from their home environment? I think it's a great question, actually. And, and I think to some degree, yes, I think it worked on both ends. Uh, my wife and I had our first baby, a little girl, last December, also in the pandemic. Mazel tov. Thank you. It's been an incredible experience. But, but guess what? A lot of my clients have met that baby, right? Like she's, mm -hmm. she's wandered into the shot. You know, they've seen the chaos going on in the background and vice versa. I, I've met a lot of my clients' pets. 
so yeah, I think that there is something nice about seeing where somebody actually lives and, and spends their time as opposed to, you know, steakhouses and conference rooms. <laughs> right. Let's stop for a minute and go back in time, Joe, because you founded LexFusion, you write blogs, you have a, your own podcast, you've had this really fascinating journey. And it started, right, as a, I won't say typical, but in a pretty typical path where you joined as an associate cast with Benson, right? Yeah, absolutely. What was your sort of career path before then? Were you one of these folks that went to undergrad and worked for a couple of years and went to law school or? So both my, my mother and my father are litigators. Uh, my mom uh, oh my. ran the torts department for Con Edison, New York's power company in-house, running a huge docket of cases because they injure a lot of people by accident. <laughs> um, and uh, my father runs his own law firm to this day, uh, Borstein Turkel, here in New York. He's 82 and he still very actively runs the firm. I believed in my heart I would be a litigator for my entire life. There was just no question about it. I went straight from Penn undergrad to Penn Law and straight from there to Kazowitz. And I, I picked Kazowitz very carefully at the time. It was, I think, the smallest firm kind of paying New York market. There was a ent real entrepreneurial element to it. It was only about 100 lawyers. and A great uh, litigation firm. Yeah, and it felt like it was growing really fast. I would say the first moment that I realized maybe the practice of law wasn't for me was uh, at Penn Law, they, they allowed you at the time to take a certificate. It's like a minor in business and public policy at the Wharton School. I took finance, I took accounting, I took some risk classes at Wharton, you know, real business school classes. And uh, I found them both interesting and frankly, a little bit easier for me. Than <laughs> law, school. law school classes tripped me up a little bit and the business classes, I, I, I thought, worked with my psyche a little bit better. But then I went to practice law and I was there for almost six years and, and I kind of had forgotten about that. And my guess is I would still be practicing law to today if I hadn't been approached by people who, had, who were early adopters and, and, and early joiners of the Pangea 3 business um, before it was acquired by Thomson Reuters. It was a bunch of Penn people. David Perlet and Sanjay Kamlani were both Penn Law grads. David was actually Penn undergrad and Penn Law, just like me. And one of their first hires uh, was a woman named Carla Bookman, who both went undergrad with me at Penn and practiced at Kazowitz with me. That was the real connection. Um, uh. She was training lawyers in India. She had moved to India. She's from Miami. She was training lawyers in India to do similar multi-state research projects that she and I had been doing on this one massive multi-billion dollar case. And she was so impressed with the capabilities and the process rigor and, and, and the ability to turn what we did very ad hoc. I mean, we did it well, but we did it ad hoc um, into rigorous project-based systems with you know, a plan that you executed on, you error checked. And uh, she started telling me about the business. She was one of my best friends. And uh, as they started growing and growing, she was like, started, it went from a conversation to a recruitment effort. And this idea of the business of law was fascinating to me. I didn't even know it existed, um, but it, it immediately tickled my fancy. I'd been to India many times, so I really believed in the ability of globalization to kind of impact all industries. Didn't know it could work in law, but that, that's how I got sucked in. And I never looked back. I just fell in love with the business of law. So about when, when was this, Joe? I was a six-year associate, I think. Okay. Um, I'd been in the firm for five and a half years as an associate, and I had summered before that. So it must have been 2010. So relatively early days for Pangea 3, right? Yes. I mean, they certainly weren't the behemoth they became 
No, so that's a leap, right? You're you're moving from a well-known, well-established litigation firm to what was not your typical business model at that time. It's obviously well more established now. I mean, the conversations I had in the first couple of years were hilarious. I mean, the the idea that you would outsource part of litigation work with some of the most confidential information in the world to India was, look, it's how I learned how to sell. You had to convince people of something that was extremely outside of what they thought was reasonable, often what they thought was even legal. Uh, I spent a lot of time walking through the ethical rules, and uh, we were lucky enough to have a recent ABA opinion. I had to know it line by line and be able to say, look, let's put that to bed. This is ethical. Now let's talk about whether there's a business benefit for you. And in the beginning, it was so offensive to law firms that a huge part of my job, when we were thrust upon law firms by corporate counsel, which is usually how it started, was to talk them off a ledge and to explain that this was actually going to be a good experience. Here's the best part. I had a thesis back then, and it evolved over time, and I wrote about it on Above the Law extensively, that outsourcing and technology would grow the legal pie, not shrink it. You wouldn't see less work, you'd see more work. And over the course of the last decade, LPOs and ALSPs have absolutely exploded. I mean, I don't, you know, the numbers are all over the place, but, you know, easily 10x growth. And guess what? The big law firms have grown too. You have not seen it. There's been no lunch eating, right? There's been, um, right. you know, I guess you could argue maybe maybe they would have grown more, but for all these innovations. But, but I, I guess I would disagree. I think that the reasonable reduction in costs on complex matters, be they M&A, litigation or, or other regulatory review has encouraged people to consume more legal because they needed more. They really were, they, they were exposed everywhere. Um, and I think as costs continue to come down modestly, you're actually going to see all kinds of more untapped demand uh, hit the market, smaller companies spending more on legal. Because I think we actually all want to spend more on legal. I know I do at LexFusion, but we can't figure out how to, how to you know, keep those costs in check. Um, so we don't do it at all. We just keep exposed risk. Yeah, and the risk and the risk profile is has continued to grow and and expand right. for anybody doing business on a global basis. Let's stick with your time with Pangea, particularly early days. You you talked about some of the hilarious conversations. This expansion of the ALSPs and LPOs and et cetera reflects, I think, a changing mindset by the purchasers of legal services where it's become safe to use these services, not, not just safe, but smart. Absolutely. How did you were, you were there for that process. How did that, it's obviously an evolutionary change, but how did that mindset change come across? Was it new generations of buyers coming into general counsel office? Was it people using examples and Pangea three, for example, getting a client and being able to leverage that client or all of the above? How did, how did that happen? I would say all of the above, but catalysts of change were, were, were the biggest factor. I think what happened is, you know, myself, David Perla, Greg McPolin, a bunch of other people who are quite persuasive, made the case to hundreds and thousands of lawyers in-house and at law firms. But I think you had to make the case and then have certain catalysts in the market force people to, to take baby steps towards change. So it was growing, but still not. There was no wildfire until the uh, Great Recession. So the first of all were the banks. The banks have been pitched for years on this. This will save you tens of millions of dollars. The results will be better, not worse. 
safer, not riskier, um, more professional in terms of these particular services. But until virtually every bank was teetering on the brink of insolvency and every department was forced to do things that would dramatically cut costs, they weren't really buying it. But, you know, there were a couple exceptions to that. But that was the first big catalyst. The next one was law firms. Another kind of big risky move I took, I was managing a lot of the corporate accounts with the biggest banks in the world and some other corporate clients. And I had some limited success with law firms. And I, I asked the powers that be at the time, now it was at Thompson, to basically abandon my post managing these big accounts and see, see if I could grow our business with law firms. And I thought that the, the time had come and this was a changing of the guard. So now a few years in, you had mid-level associates who were forced to use offshore services by their banking clients or and eventually other, you know, other big clients. But now that was just the way they practiced law. So three or four years later, some of them were partners, senior associates. They, they had moved up a few rungs of the ladder and could make their own decisions. And they knew how they, to practice law for themselves. They started using uh, these types of services on their own. They were then able to persuade you know, other lawyers who had probably been softened up by you know, stories in the media and, and, and work we had done in the past. But you know, by six or seven years in, about 20 or 30% of the work, and now it was over 1,000 lawyers um, in India and other locations, was coming directly from law firms. Law firms, as opposed to being thrust upon them, they were proactively making a decision to bring in Pangea and other, and other great LPOs. Pangea then got bought by TR, right? Yeah, Pangea was bought by TR just as I joined, actually. Ah, okay. Bought by TR in 2010. They were bought again by Ernst & Young just a few years ago. So now Pangea 3 is a, is a wholly owned division of Ernst & Young, part of EY Law, which is a, a, a behemoth and doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah, talk to me a little about EY. You, you, were, you were with EY for, for a few years. Yep. Right? Share your thoughts with us, if you would, about, you don't have to get into anything confidential for EY. Of course. But, but what's the role of the big four in the business of, of law? And how is that evolving? Where do you see that going? So I think you can't talk about EY or any of the big four without talking about the regulatory regime, right? EY and Deloitte, PwC, these are some of the biggest organizations in the world. They each have somewhere in the order of 300,000 employees. I mean, numbers that just astound lawyers. And they are structured a lot like partners. They are partnerships. Um, they're structured a lot like law firms. There's partners, there's basically associates, they call them managers, senior managers. I was, I was actually shocked at, at how familiar the command and control structure felt. It's really flat as opposed to a corporation like Thomson Reuters. Really? Um, that surprises me. Very flat. Like, like you know, I, I met the global head of tax in my first few weeks. Like, I didn't meet the CEO of Thomson Reuters very often, even though it's, you know, six times the size, at least in terms of headcount, and, you know, 30 some odd, some, some ridiculous billions in revenue. It depends on the jurisdiction. So remember, the U.S. is, is, is unique in that non-lawyers cannot share in, in profits with lawyers in a law firm. The rest of the world is mostly not like that. So in most of the rest of the world, Ernst & Young and a lot of the other big four are just a law firm. It's, it's not that foreign. It's not that threatening. It's not that shocking in other countries. They're just, you know, they have a brand name. In some countries, they're a really excellent law firm. Some countries, they're an okay law firm, right? Just also like, like most global is, firms. Like most global firms, exactly. So, they, you know, they have some huge advantages, right? So they have boots on the ground 
in most major companies. Like in a big company, they could easily do 50, 100, 150 million in revenue doing things from tax work and consulting and, and, and be their auditors. So that's a huge advantage to already have boots on the ground. But there's also huge disadvantages. There are SEC restrictions on what you can do if you audit a company. Uh, and those are, that's in the US, obviously, but, but globally, there's all sorts of similar rules uh, and they're impenetrable. Like you, like even as a lawyer, you will never understand them deeply unless you do it full time. So there are huge barriers to entry for who they can work for and what they can work on. So, for example, most of the big four do not do any litigation work, even in the countries where they are absolutely allowed to practice law. Why? Because the conflicts are so complicated when you have multiple parties on both sides of the V that it's actually not even worth it. You know, it just creates a hassle. So they will never be full service. As long as they continue that policy and the rules don't change, they will never be full service law firms. So that is obviously holds them back. They will never work for any of the companies they audit. Guess what? Each one of them audits 20% of global companies and your auditor changes. So sometimes you have to drop a client basically forever or for an undisclosed amount of time. So that's a huge disadvantage. So I, I guess when thinking about them, they are real players in the space. If the U.S. changes its rules, and again, it's the outlier, that, I mean, I, it would be hard for me to imagine they don't become a law firm in the U.S. Why? Because they're a law firm everywhere else. But they will only do limited things. It will never be their core function. So, uh, you know, auditing and, and consulting is huge. Just remember, you're talking $30 billion. You're talking about the combined revenue of like the top 10 law firms. So law, unless it doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles, it will always be a, you know, a secondary or tertiary function for them. Whereas, you know, at Safarth, at Baker McKenzie, they're in the business of law. That's it. Right. So there is a difference when you are the main show and you or you're, you know, second or third or fourth act. So I think it's really interesting. I think it's going to do a lot of good. Some of the stuff they do is fantastic. They do global corporate secretarial work. A lot of kind of quasi-legal functions involve a ton of essentially non-legal ad advice and work and a global footprint. So, you know, global corporate secretarial, you need boots on the ground in every country. UI actually has that in just virtually every single solitary country in the world. So they're a great one-stop shop. They built some of their own technology. They are fantastic at that. So, you know, I'm being a little long-winded, but I think they have a huge role to play in the world, but it shouldn't be all fear because there are a lot of things that they can't do, period. And I think as a result of that, you know, if you're a lawyer who wants to bring in like all of the work of a General Electric, their litigation work, their investigations work, you just can't do that at, at a big four, period. So it might not be an appealing place for you to land. No, I, I, I take your point. It has struck me, though, that they have a potential outsized impact on change in the industry for a couple of reasons. I'd be interested whether, I, whether I'm misreading the situation. One, they've got investment dollars to put into technology and technology development that dwarfs, if they choose to do so, dwarfs that of law firms. And secondly, my perception has been they're a little more used to working in a multidisciplinary environment than law firms are doing. And so they, they have the mindset to draw on the talent of multiple allied professionals, which the legal industry is just learning. So I have strong views on both of these. Uh, I would love to hear them. I'll start with my strong agreement on point two. Um, multidisciplinary teams, they're way better at. And like I said about corporate secretarial or HR services, they're going to have a huge impact there and, and they're going to be really good at it. So we are in violent agreement on that one. On the technology investment, I actually really disagree. So yes, they have tons of capital. They're not technology companies. 
you cannot bring in a technologist and give them equity in their product. It doesn't work like that. They're, they're partnerships. Great technologists, just like I also believe they won't go to law firms. So I guess I agree with you on some level. They're really great technology, I believe so strongly. This is the debate I have with Zach Abramowitz all the time and other people. I don't think it's going to come from law firms or the big four. I think it's going to come from independent technology companies. Why? Because we as lawyers know you want to make somebody work ridiculously hard and give up decades of their life. You have to offer them a chance of, of equity ownership, which means partnership in a law firm, and it means stock ownership in a tech company. Um, under our rules now, you, you, you can't really do that neither. Then there's another big thing. They cannot sell to any of the companies that the big four audit. So you, you take 20% of all global corporations off the table. That's pretty rough, right? Like, and, and again, those change. So imagine you build this amazing enterprise technology and you sell it to, I'm making up the company, uh, let's call it Oranges as opposed to Apple. You sell it to Oranges and then two years later, they pick up the audit on Oranges. They can't use that technology. They can't do other business enterprise-wide with people that they're auditing. And remember those, A, it's 20% and B, that 20% changes over time. That is a huge hurdle to making the type of technology deals that, that we're thinking of that go across a whole enterprise and hopefully last forever. The only reason you get those massive valuations is for tech that in theory is getting, you know, is coming in as a perpetuity sale as opposed to services. So it's really a struggle for them. And also they don't consider themselves technology. They're good at working with technology, alongside technology, with process. But they are, they are, like I said, it feels a lot like a law firm that does all kinds of different stuff. They're, they're, they really are services companies, and they're, and they're great at that. So great. I, don't, I don't see the threat on the technology side, but then again, I don't see the upside for law firms either. Um, <laughs> well, it balances out, I suppose. Yeah. Let, 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 let's stick on the technology front, Joe. Talk to me a little bit about LexFusion, which is your newest venture, sort of. What is it, and how did the idea come to you? I presume it wasn't just one day in a shower, being the light bulb goes off. This was, this was an evolution of thinking. Yeah, so uh, it was originally supposed to be called Ikigai Law, and that term sounds terrible, but it is an amazing and beautiful Japanese word that basically means it's, it's a little bit like the me your meaning of life, but it's a little bit has more of a professional bent to it. I read this book on it, and I was fascinated by, by this concept of, like, what is it that I love to do that, that helps the world, that people want to pay me for? And for me, it's really finding great ideas and bringing them together and bringing them to market. So that was the, the original kernel of the idea was I wanted to try something where I was not just working for one company. So I was, uh, I was ready to move on from Pangea. Again, EY was great. I've been with them for 10 years. Uh, you couldn't find a bigger venue than Ernst & Young, right? Uh, it felt like it had a good home and I was ready to try something new. So I looked at a bunch of legal technology companies, interviewed, got some fantastic offers, and something fell off. Like it didn't feel like my professional role in life, the Japanese Ziki guy. I felt like there was something missing where I could use the great connections I had made with corporate counsel and law firms and talk to them about a much wider swath of the innovation world, be it global services, technology, and most importantly, and I think this really doesn't come through in most of our interviews, it's the white space in between. So we're hardly ever just talking about one thing in these conversations. If we're talking about, Latera is one of our companies, they have a fantastic product called Litigate, which is formerly Allegory. If I'm talking about litigate, I'm talking about how to improve the outcomes of litigation through the product litigate and through global services and make massive cost improvements 
and massive outcome improvements. And that can only be done by putting pieces together. It can only be done, frankly, by people that have a ton of experience in the industry. So, you know, as opposed to hiring kind of junior go-to-market people who could be great hustlers, but, you know, haven't spent decades in the legal industry. We went the other direction, like all of our employees are and will be expensive <laughs> and uh, right. hopefully bring a lot of value to the people they're talking to and can think through at, at a 50,000 foot level how to make big jumps in efficiency, in accuracy, in cost savings, in one-to-many representation. And we can only do that by putting together a network of best-in-class solutions across virtually everything that's going on in legal innovation. That's where we want to be. We want to, quote-unquote, block out the sun. And if you call us, we can tell you, here's all the stuff going on. Here, who we think is best-in-class. Look, it's our opinion. You might not agree, but we do a ton of homework to get there. Define for me the problem Lux Fusion is designed to solve. So our, our motto is greasing the gears of commerce in, in legal innovation. They go too slow. I'll tell you a story that happened just last week. A friend who's now the managing partner of the second biggest office of a major firm who I've been friends with forever finally asked me to show him some stuff. I showed him like four technologies and he was like, why haven't you shown me this earlier? And I was like, because the gears of commerce and legal are broken. Things can be out for a decade. I mean, look at Pangea. We had great growth, right? We got up to 1,500 lawyers. We were one-tenth the price and more accurate than the alternatives at the time. We should have been growing 200% a year. It was actually quite slow, the growth. To me, it was painful and slow. And, and we want to change that. We want to get good ideas in front of dozens of companies and dozens of law firms in months, not years or decades, and get those companies, you know, next round of funding, improve the technology, and then move on to, to the next batch of great companies. It's a little bit like an accelerator, um, but we're working on both sides. We have the trust on the buying side, and we, you know, we think we make good selections on the selling side. We want to move this whole thing faster. That's like our raison d'etre. So on the buying side, your market is law firms and legal departments, I presume? Any, anybody who's looking for Law firm, yeah, major law firms and major corporate counsel. I mean, not that we're adverse to talking to smaller firms, but we're not going to grease the gears of commerce as much with smaller buyers, right? Right. So, and so the challenge that I, as a potential buyer, am facing is the legal tech landscape is fragmented. And ever-changing. I mean, it's and ever changing. so fast. And, and it's not my job to keep up with it. I just know I need to produce work better, faster, cheaper. And so what LexFusion does, if I'm to paraphrase what you're talking about, you've got the expertise and the connections in the legal tech space where you've vetted and worked through a variety of potential solution sets in particular categories and have selected one or two best in class. Yeah, actually just one in each category. Just one in category. And you have the ability to sit down with me as the buyer and get to whatever my problem happens to be and be able to produce a, a, a design solution to attack that problem. That's absolutely right. And, and we sit down with, with innovators, both in-house, and we, we, we tell them the whole landscape as opposed to, you know, the classic, you know, man with a hammer, everything's a nail, being like, oh, you know, and that was me, believe me. Like, you know, I tried my best to not be that. But when my entire purpose was to sell offshore services, guess what came up every single time? I bet offshore <laughs> services came up. You're, you're right. So we, we block out the sun of every category. I, we sit down and we listen. All we have promised to our member companies is we're going to do our best to get them a seat at the table. That's it. And we're going to tell them why we selected them and what we think is great. So I'll give you a great example. We selected Agiloft 
Agileoft is slightly less well-known in the contract lifecycle management space, I think, than, than Ironclad that, that, that just raised you know, a ton of money, iCertis that raised a ton of money. Ask me what I think of Ironclad. You must not have thought they were the best option. No, I think they're. I think it's a great company. <laughs> like that, that, that. That's the thing. Like we're we're very open and honest. I don't think that my companies are the only good company. I think they're excellent. That was our standard. It was an excellent standard, not best in class. Um, we do use that term, and every time I want to slap myself, I hate it. It's not what I believe because I don't believe that that exists. This is way too fast moving for there to be a best. There are excellent teams. There are well funded teams, and there's good and excellent technology. We think Agileoft fulfills all of those. We've installed it ourselves. We've seen people really love it. We also worked on Ironclad and it was great. And they're doing awesome stuff. There's not one solution, but we accelerate the decision-making process massively. And we've done it already in seven months. We've done massive deals with big companies um, where we're helping them think through it much quicker. Like you can run a year-long RFP, which is what we did on every deal ever for the first 10 years of my career, or you can talk to us. Say, look, there's four good ones. Here's what's good about this. Here's what's good about that. Here's why we love Ironclad. Here's how it fits in. Sorry, our, Agile often in our case, but here's how it fits into our ecosystem. So we think we can find you other synergies and other ways because it's never just about one tool. When you're talking about Agileoft, one of the things that we loved about it was it APIs so easily into all the new tools. And there are new tools coming out now. Like you can't even keep up. There are tools like LexCheck and Blackboiler that are doing automated redlining. Guess what? They work really well with Agileoft. That's one of the things we loved about it. We think it's a great home, a great base. Some people are going to disagree. And we're definitely not going to say that Ironclad or iCertis, which are good products, aren't good products. I will never say that. And I say the same on the services side. You know, we're working with Haystack ID. I can tell you some of the things that will blow your mind about Haystack ID that are truly differentiated and awesome. Does that mean my old colleagues at Pangea aren't good? No, of course they are. But we get, it, we get Haystack ID a seat at the table, and we think that they deserve a seat at the table and should be reviewed quickly. So again, greasing the gears of commerce, like it is a, we, we're speeding up and accelerating adoption of, of something. And we think we're putting a thumb on the scale for the, for the companies that we chose that we think are awesome. Yeah, what's, what's interesting about what you said, you said, a number of things are interesting. One of the things I found particularly on point at least from our experience, is this ability of the programs to work with each other. Huge. Because it's we found it's rare where one piece of software or one technology service provider provides the complete solution set because the solutions tend to be nuanced and they tend to be multivariant. And you need software that works with other service providers and other solution sets to get the precise solution to the problems you're encountering. 100%. And you often need services to help wire the technology that then wires with other technology. So we have that all in the circle and we get those people together. We've also done sales in the circle. We're working on a licensing deal, I won't say, but between two of our the members in the circle where we think they have an amazing deal together, amazing offering together that, that nobody else has. So it is it is definitely about the market. And I think that's, that gets all the attention because we spend a lot of our time meeting with the market, but we spend a lot of time internally too. Like we are absolutely, I mean, uh, Casey Flaherty ran, we think the world's largest legal project management team. He is absolutely consulting inside the circle of companies about what law firms actually do, what project management looks like, how do they, how do they evolve the product towards what people really want. That part gets no press. That's I spend a, a huge part of my day, at least half, working internally with my companies to make their, their offering, certainly their messaging. I love go-to-market. I think I'm more well-known for that. 
But, um, you know, if you talk to Ed Soner and the people I worked with at Pangea, like I was always coming to them, to them with ideas from the market often of how we can rejigger our services to make them more appealing. And that's where a huge percentage of our growth came, not just from selling the same stuff over and over, but from going in completely new directions with what can we do with offshore services. I presume I can guess at your answer to this, but uh, the sales cycle, particularly in technology sales into the legal space, has always been challenging and long. <laughs> Br- uh, is a term you use brutal. Yeah. Brutal, yeah, there you go. Has that gotten better? Has that gotten smoother as you see adoption continue to increase? Is it, is it, it getting has, better? It is getting better. It is getting better. And, and I'll tell you one of the best things that's gotten better, it's still very long, but we used to act like we're all enemies. Like, you know, procurement teams or buyers would not talk openly. And may, maybe I've just gotten better relationships over the years. But, but one of the things we do is let's say they're looking into CLM tech. Let's go back to Agileoff. They'll tell us we're not looking at it till you know, seven months from now. So in seven months, absolutely talk with us. Let's set up a meeting now. Now I don't have to waste any more time, right? Like, so it's, it's less stressful. It's, it's a little bit more predictable. There are buying cycles that, that are established. And also I do think that it goes faster. You still are seeing ridiculous RFPs with questions that no one reads the answer to. It really is unfair to the providers. It also hurts the buyers because, you know, often it's the most senior level writing the answers to those RFPs. And that's time they could be spending making the product better and, and all that. And also that you can often get in a Q&A in, in 10 minutes right. <laughs> uh, live. But uh, they're, they're, I think they're getting less abusive, more, more respectful of people's times. I can't tell you. I, I, I wrote countless RFP responses. And I mean, they were really detailed down to like security apparatus. Like how did we set up Pangea over in India? Did we have thumbprint scanners? How do we prevent people from printing out documents? It was painful stuff to write. Uh, hypothetical situations about cases that I don't think any lawyer on the planet could actually answer with integrity. <laughs> uh, you know, what would you do in this 10 million document case if, you know, first came, I was like, come on. Like yeah, we would have millions of conversations. There'd be so much more back and forth. It's uh, not real. So it has gotten, I think, less abusive, more collaborative. And I think a lot of the buyers, especially on the corporate side, not to knock law firms, but really see the providers as the partners, long-term partners that are, you know, even if they don't have the perfect product for them, are working to make it better. Another advantage of LexFusion is the relationships. If we don't win, which of course we don't win all the time, we ask why. And we get pretty honest feedback and we can go back to our vendors who are all like well-funded and brilliant. We'd say like, hey, we could have won this if we had XYZ, ABC. So, you know, we, we are trying to also, that's another way of greasing the gears of commerce, make people build what buyers want, right? And, and that's something that you're often not going to get from junior salespeople who they you know, have a very transactional relationship with. But we're really getting that feedback, you know, on wins and losses. Right. Well, Joe, you're doing some incredible things. It's going to be it's going to be great for those of us on the outside to watch how LexFusion expands and continues to drive change in the business. Uh, we're out of time, so I want to say thanks for your time and the fascinating conversation. And good luck with LexFusion. This is awesome, and we've always looked up to Safearth as a leader uh, in innovation and somebody that, that paid attention before everyone else. So, really, an honor to be on the show, and thank you. Well, it's great to have you. And for those of you listening, check out LexFusion. Check out Joe's. Do you still write your blogs for Above the Law? No, unfortunately not. I don't have the time anymore to write full articles, but I am doing a weekly show called Future Law on Latera TV. I'd love to have you where I'm interviewing technologists, firm leaders, C-suite. It's been really fun. And you've had some great guests on, so folks should check it out. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Stephen. 
Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.